0: All right, thank you, singers. Uh, if you turn with me in your book, Bibles, please, uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. Genesis, chapter 9. We're going to look this evening at one of the great symbols of the Scriptures. Uh, we see in the Bible uh, many of the things that God uh, has placed in this world, are not just they themselves, what they are, but actually they symbolize something else. Uh, they are symbols. One of the most obvious things that I can point to is marriage. And human marriage is not just the joining together of two human beings, but it symbolizes a Christ and the church. Another is the relationship between parent and child, which pictures uh, part of the relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. Another symbol is that the king and the subject, or the master and the slave. And the Bible says to us that all of those picture part of our relationship to God, And there are many others that I could point to, uh, yet we should find it no coincidence that these symbols are all faring badly in our society. All these symbols are under attack or have been done away with. And the more rare good, symbols, uh, good pictures of these symbols become, the more challenging it becomes as us for us as Christians to communicate that to other people. When I say that uh, God loves you like a father loves his child, for many people in the room that doesn't really mean much. For them, all Dad was... Uh, was a source of uncertainty and fear. Uh, when I say that God is owed your fealty, like a subject owes the king, well, we bow to no supreme ruler. I might as well be speaking Greek to most people. Uh, so this evening, if I can just put your mind a little bit closer uh, to God on just one of these symbols, then then I will be satisfied with that. So let's read here in Genesis chapter nine. Then I'll pray, and then we'll begin. Uh, in Genesis chapter nine, look down there in verse five. The Bible reads this. It says, "And surely your blood." Of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your house, your people, your word. Lord, it's to you we look this evening. Thank you for this time of worship that you've given us. Lord, we ask for your power to be upon your scriptures as they preach. We ask for your convicting spirit to be upon any that are here today that does not know you. We look forward to what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The great symbol that we will be studying this evening is the death penalty. The penalty of death. The scriptures tell us that our God is a God of justice. That our God is a God of holiness. And that our God is the author of the death penalty. You might say to me, Josh who invented the death penalty? Who came up with that thing? Well the Bible makes the answer very clear. The author and inventor of the death penalty is God himself. God invented the death penalty. He ordained that there are actions that humans can take that render them worthy of death and not a natural death, not just one day you're going to die, But a death brought on early, a death carried out by other human beings, which we call capital punishment, or the death penalty. And in our passage here this evening, we get a case study of why God demands the death penalty. Firstly, for those who murder. We read that in killing another human being, a man or a woman is killing something made in the image of God. Look down on your passage and read verse 6 again with me. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now we may not understand the symbolism here, but Satan certainly does. In John 8, Jesus tells us this about Satan. It says, he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan's greatest desire is to kill God, but he cannot do that. Do that, the closest he's ever got, is in killing the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the next best thing is beings made that are bearing the image of God. Humans, in other words. And every time a man unlawfully takes the life of another man, he is replicating in miniature Satan's desire to destroy God. And it is a very serious thing to take the life of a being made in the image of God. A very serious thing. And God allocates to that what we call murder. He allocates that the highest possible penalty that man can give The death penalty secondly in our passage we read that this is to be done because the murderer has shed blood because he has shed blood then that's not just a little thing there to get a bit gory for you so that you think oh this sounds pretty serious the actual shedding of blood itself is a serious matter it says whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed and as we read the scriptures we discover that the shedding of blood is a very serious affair And it carries with it very serious consequences. Turn with me, please, to Numbers, chapter 35. Flip over to Numbers, chapter 35, and we'll read from verse 29. Give you a moment to get there. Notice our first passage there from Genesis was before the law was given. This is now when the law has been given. Part of that perfect law reads this from from verse 29 in Numbers 35. So these things shall be for a statute of judgment unto you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses, but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction, no, no payment, that means, for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. If you skip down to verse 33, it says, So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not, therefore, the land which ye inhabit, wherein I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. And there are several things we can see from this passage. The first is that there are no alternatives to the death penalty that God would have the children of Israel accept. In some cultures, you killed a man and it was either the death penalty or, or you just had to pay a significant amount of money to his family. God said, you're not going to have that. If he tries to buy you off, you are to say, no, you committed murder and now we as the government are going to put you to death. And God said, accept nothing less. Ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer. God left no loopholes. Secondly, we see that the failure to put the murderers to death pollutes And defiles the land. It seems to have an effect upon the actual ground, upon the earth, when innocent blood is shed. Read verse 33 again with me. Look down there in verse 33. It says, So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are. Now a lot of people today claim to have a big problem with pollution. They say pollution is bad. Pollution is to be fought everywhere it's found. Well here you have God talking about the sort of pollution that you should be concerned about. You ready for God's view on what pollutes the land? Well, here it comes. For blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Unrequited shed blood, blood that is not paid for with the blood of the murderer, that pollutes and that defiles the land. Now, you might think, well, hey, what's the land going to do about it? Hey, it's just rocks just rocks and dirt. Uh, What's the land going to do about unrequited blood that's been shed on it? Well, it is plain from the scriptures that the land can and the land does respond to being defiled over and over again in unrequited blood. In Leviticus 18, we read this. For all these abominations have the men of the land done which were before you, and the land is defiled that the land spew not you out also when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations which were before you. When men refuse to carry out God's command to put to death the murderer, then the Bible makes it plain that their own land can turn against them and vomit them out. Now, I don't want to pretend that every time a natural disaster afflicts a country that that is God smiting it for its failure to put to death the murderer. But what I will say is that what we call nature and natural is not neutral, it is not just random chance going on, it can and it does respond to unrequited blood. In fact, God took it so seriously that in Deuteronomy 21, He gave the Israelites some instructions. He said, if you guys find someone who's been murdered, like you're out in the field and there's a guy, someone's obviously done him in, and you can't find the murderer to execute him, well, what you need to do is you need to find the nearest city, and the men of that city, they need to come, and they need to sacrifice an animal there, they need to make a blood atonement for that, That the land be not defiled and God move against us because of that. Now, I'm not advocating that there's some sort of earth spirit out there that gets angry when we soak it in unrequited blood. The Bible makes plain that the blood of the murdered cries out to God from the ground, and God hears it, and God will respond to it using what the unsaved would call nature or unfortunate coincidence. Remember the words of the Lord to Cain, the first murderer. Cain had just killed his brother. And God said this, and he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hast opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Abel's blood cried out to God, and God heard it, and Cain was cursed from the earth. The earth responded, also, now some will object to this plain teaching, and they will say, "Oh, look, look! Uh, this, this is Old Testament. This, this, is all Old Testament. It must be different now. Uh, this is, this is the law. Uh, Jesus has come. Uh, the, the, the New Testament is about love and grace. So surely, that's just not the case anymore." And yet I'm here to tell you tonight that God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And we find this teaching repeated in the New Testament. God has not changed. Not one bit. In Revelation 6, we read this. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Martyred saints murdered saints the spirits of just men made perfect they're there they're in heaven they're under the altar of God and they're going to ask God for something I wonder what they will ask what are they going to ask God for well here it comes and they cried with a loud voice saying how long O Lord holy and true dost not thou judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth The souls of these murdered, martyred saints call to God and they invoke their blood that was shed and they call for God to judge and they call for God to avenge. And they aren't rebuked for it. God doesn't say, why are you saying such awful things? All God said is, is, wait, wait. I will, but but wait, not yet. This is not just an Old Testament teaching. We found it first, well before the law of Moses, just after the flood, God said, You shall not suffer a murderer to live. We found it repeated throughout the law of Moses. And finally, we find it repeated also throughout the New Testament. Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. And here the Holy Spirit teaches us through the writings of the Apostle Paul why we should submit to the government, why we should pay taxes, Romans chapter 13, let's read from verse 1. It says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to their evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good." And thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. The government is a minister of God, and one of the instructions that God has given to the government is that it is to bear the sword and it is to execute wrath upon evildoers. In fact, read. look down in verse 5. Let's continue. It says, Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, not just because you're afraid, but also for conscience' sake. Your own conscience should tell you that this is right. But read in verse 6. You want to know why you're supposed to be paying taxes? For this For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Paul goes on to point out the reason you should pay your taxes to financially support our governments is so that they can continue executing wrath upon evildoers. They are commanded to attend continually upon this very thing. The death penalty was commanded of God before the law. It was commanded of God by the law. And even in the age of grace, it is still the will of God that the death penalty be carried out by the governments of men. Now, just because something is the will of God doesn't mean it will necessarily happen everywhere. As our nation has progressively rejected God, so we ceased to put to death our murderers many years ago. And that, that does worry me for our nation. It's building up. Every time we release a murderer who goes and kills again, well, that goes on the tab. Every time we fail to execute a murderer, that goes on our tab. The blood is being shed and it is not being paid for. For every two babies that we birth here in Australia, a third one is aborted in this country. Now, we call it abortion. God calls that murder. The unborn child is made in the image of God. The unborn child is helpless and defenseless. To take that child and to put it to death for the sins of its parents is a great wickedness and though their blood fall only into a stainless steel bowl, that blood cries out to God for justice and he is not deaf that he cannot hear nor is his hand shortened that he cannot be moved against a nation that would continue to do so and would not repent and would not requite that blood. Now I said that I'd tell you that this, how this symbol of the death penalty should be approached at a national level. And that is how it should be approached. The Bible gives you no other option there. I've done that now. But how ought Christians to approach the death penalty as individuals? Some people think it's the same thing. Well, we should treat... If the government's supposed to do that, then we as Christians should be doing the exact same thing. But it's not. It's not. God gave the Israelites a command on how to run their national legal system. He said, here's how it's to be done. An eye for an eye. If a bloke steals a sheep, then he has to give a sheep back an extra. And that is actually quite a good way to run your national legal system. Uh, But when Jesus was among the Jews, they'd actually taken that legal principle and they decided to use that as a personal life principle, a way to run life for me. So you do something for me, well, I go and I get back at you for that. I do an eye for an eye. And what's good for the nation and for the legal system isn't necessarily good for you as a way to run your life. And Jesus said this to correct them there. He said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right tree, turn to him the other also. Jesus was teaching them, this is how you're supposed to run your life. Not according to an eye for an eye. That's how the government's supposed to run the legal system. That's for the courts. And you know this. I mean, if somebody flogs your watch and you end up in court and then the judge was to say, well, you know, uh, resist not evil, turn the other cheek, so you better give the thief your mobile too, you'd say, this is injustice. This isn't how we should be running this country. Uh, You would be ropeable. Anything less than an eye for an eye would be injustice. But should your goal as an individual be to get revenge on anyone that takes anything from you? Well, we know as Christians, not so. Not so. That's why Jesus taught this, and and he had no problem saying, think not that I am come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Well, in the same way, while nationally we know that it is God's will that the death penalty be carried out, our desire as Christians is not to see more people executed, but to see more people saved. More people saved, it is the responsibility of governments to carry out the death penalty, but not us as individuals. And we see this clearly tonight. We heard the story of the the woman caught in adultery, and we saw how Jesus dealt with that. Now, when Jesus showed up and he met the Pharisees, uh, these weren't people that were following God. Uh, They weren't operating even according to the Old Testament. They weren't within a cooey of God's heart or God's precepts. And their problem wasn't that they were just too zealous to obey everything God had commanded. Their problem was that they were, a wicked, they were wicked men operating a false religion that just happened to look like true religion. Take the example of that woman caught in adultery. The law of Moses commanded that she be stoned. Yet the Jews hadn't been practicing execution for adultery for several hundred years at this stage. Even the Pharisees didn't execute for adultery. They had built up another system of increasing punishments, uh, of which the ultimate punishment was supposed to be stoning. Uh, but... Effectively, nobody was getting executed for adultery in Jesus' day. Uh, in fact, uh, they actually had no power to do so. The Romans were the ones that had the power of execution. Uh, the Jews had a saying in that day. They said, if we were to stone all the adulterers, we'd run out of stones before we ran out of adulterers. That was, that was their claim. You say, well, you can keep reusing a stone. Uh, but, you know, obviously that was their extrapolation. Uh, but it was, it was not a common thing to do. Uh, so they had found this woman who was committing adultery. They let the bloke get away. They dragged her before Jesus to set a trap for him because they knew he took the scriptures more seriously than they ever would. And if they, if they could get him to say, yes, well, you know what the Bible says, uh, you should stone her, then they would alienate him from those people, those sinners that he was uh, witnessing to. Uh, and they would also have him in trouble with the Romans. Here's a man trying to execute people, and no one's allowed to do that, but you, Romans, you should go down there and get him. And notice how Jesus turned this situation around. He put it straight back on the Pharisees and he went directly to the topic of their sin, directly to that topic, and they left. And then he turned to the woman. And what did he talk to the woman about? Well, he talked to her about her sin. And so in the middle of all this, Jesus is there challenging people about their sin, not doing his utmost to see people get killed. The Pharisees would happily have sacrificed that woman to attack the man who was teaching others how they could be saved. And Christ mercifully preached sin to both and managed to preserve the woman. And this is to be our spirit also as Christians. When the disciples and Jesus were slighted by a village that would not receive them, the disciples wanted capital punishment and they wanted it immediately. They wanted Jesus to call down fire from heaven and burn those people up. And Jesus rebuked them saying... But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And this must be our spirit also. We are here to save men's lives, not to destroy them. The responsibility for administering the death penalty has been given to the government, not to us. And even though our unrighteous governments will not fulfill their part, we are not excused from fulfilling our part. And what is our part? Is to seek and to save that which is lost. And so this evening we have seen that firstly it is God's will that governments should carry out the death penalty. Likewise we have seen that as Christians our desire should be to save men and women, not work towards their deaths. And that there is no conflict between God's will for the nations and God's will for us as individual Christians. But finally we see that the death penalty is a symbol and a reminder of the awful final reality of sin. I called it one of the great symbols. Why? Because the death penalty symbolizes for us on earth, and I'll read this slowly, final, ultimate, painful, irreversible, and perpetual punishment. I'll say that again. The death penalty symbolizes for us on earth final, ultimate, painful, irreversible, and perpetual punishment. It was to be a visible and constant reminder of the wages of sin. In looking at an execution, man got a glimpse of one of the realities of God, that there is coming a day when, like this human being who we now give the ultimate penalty to, there is coming a day when God will judge us all in such a way that is the maximum severity and the maximum seriousness possible, in such a way that there's no no second chances there. And there was once upon a time in the West where we called our prisons penitentiaries or penal institutions, And those two terms are derived from the word penalty, and the idea behind them was that they existed to deliver a penalty, a punishment, upon those who had broken the law. And they were an attempt to fulfill the command of the government that God has given to the government in Romans 13. Because men understood God and his symbols, they understood that the nature of the law was to punish evil and to avenge iniquity. But what do we call those places now? We call them corrective centres corrective centres. As a nation, we are no longer comfortable carrying out God's mandate of punishment. Instead, we are only comfortable with the notion of prisons as a place to correct behaviour, not to punish it. Yet the death penalty stood as the final and ultimate rejection of that philosophy of man. The death penalty has no corrective element. It is not aimed at helping you become a better person and grow and develop as a unique uh, individual. It is not restorative. There is nothing in it for the criminal. They lose everything and gain nothing, and society gains an understanding of God and an understanding of the awful final consequence of unchecked sin. And the symbol of the death penalty is given to us to help us understand the truth of the gospel. We are told for the wages of sin is death. We see in the death penalty that there are crimes for which an entire man's life should be forfeit. There are crimes that are so serious that they earn a wage so severe that the wage is death. God uses the symbol of the death penalty in this life to say to us, see this chap getting executed? you see the wages that his sin has earned him in this life, how it's costing him everything? How there's no coming back from that? Well, when this life is done in the same way, I too will judge you. And that's how serious your sin is, that even what we call little sins, God says they merit the highest possible maximum punishment. Now, if you can understand and accept the death penalty, then you can understand and accept God's highest penalty, which is to be cast into the lake of fire from which no man returns. The Bible calls this the second death. And if you are here tonight and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then understand that this is your current destination. Your sin carries an eternal death sentence in this life and the next. You have committed sin that demands death as a payment and there is no buying your way out of it. You cannot pay cash. You can't pay by doing some good things to balance it out. You must acknowledge that you are utterly helpless before almighty God. And if that is you tonight, then there is no better place than you can be because God has a soft spot for the helpless. You have a spiritual death penalty coming and you are helpless to escape it. Now, if you say, no, no, mate, I'm right. I'll be okay. It's, it's gonna, I'm not that bad. It's going to balance out in the end. Uh, I'm not helpless. Then God says, okay, to you. That's fine. Uh, I will see you on the last day and we will see who is helpless then. If you think, no, I don't need it, I'm not helpless, I'm fine, God will leave you as you are. That's why Jesus said this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're here tonight and you say, no, I'm righteous, I do not deserve that penalty, then God says, hey, I'm not here to to, to try and call you. I'm going to go to somebody who knows they're a sinner, who knows that they are helpless. But if you are here... Tonight, and you know you are helpless, then there is hope because God has a soft spot for the helpless and a plan for the helpless. And the Bible has plainly unfolded that plan. God Himself became a man named Jesus Christ and He underwent that death penalty despite being pure and innocent. His body died physically. He he did the first death, you know, where, where, where our bodies die. And then He underwent the spiritual death. He underwent the second death. That's where you're separated from God. It says when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God took all the sins that you have committed and placed them upon Jesus, the other two members of the Trinity separated themselves from Jesus. And we face an eternal second death of separation from God in the lake of fire. But Jesus has done both the first and the second death and all your sins have been placed upon him already. If you are here tonight and you know that you are helpless and you do not want to pay your own death penalty, then know this, that Jesus will, God will accept Jesus' death as a payment for your penalty. It was God's plan for the helpless 4,000 years in the making. And it is available tonight to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus, confessing their sin and turning from it to believe on Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid your death penalty and you can escape God's righteous judgment by switching places with Jesus Christ. By having Jesus pay your penalty and by you switching to receive his righteousness. And so the question comes this evening. Is there anyone here tonight who knows that they are helpless? Is there anyone here tonight who wants the righteousness of Jesus in place of their death penalty? It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus has already paid it all. Maybe you've committed those sins that I talked about this evening. Maybe you put your own child to death in the womb, or or maybe you didn't. Maybe you just talked your daughter or your, your girlfriend into it. Uh, Or maybe you've done none of that, but you hated someone in your heart. The book of 1 John says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Are you a helpless murderer tonight? A helpless liar tonight? A helpless adulterer? A helpless luster? A helpless thief? A helpless gossip? If so, you've got the stain of sin for most or all of these upon you. You have the blot. You have the righteous death sentence of God. And you can be free of that this evening. You can be free of it. Usually when you list these sins and people start to remember them and recall with shame the things that they did, Uh, they they want to go back to when they were a little child before they committed these sins and back to when they were innocent. They think, I I wish I could go back there and, and I could do it all over again. But the Bible speaks plainly That you can be made purer now and cleaner now and whiter now than you ever were as a little child. If only you would call out in faith to the Lord Jesus, you can be made perfect this evening. You can be made perfect this evening. So I ask the question again, is there anyone here who would say, I am helpless before God tonight? If that's you, I ask that you would come, join me at the front. When this service is done, come join us as we sing this final hymn, come join me and I can take you through the scriptures and make it so that you can know for sure that you are a Christian and that you were delivered from the death penalty. Brethren, my last challenge is for you. You've been saved from the penalty of death, yet every day you go out amongst those that are still under that same penalty. You've heard tonight of Jesus' heart for these helpless sinners. This week, just one track. Just one conversation, just one prayer can see another soul delivered and brought to the Father for His eternal glory. We want to know what spirit we are of, and we want it to be the same spirit as the Lord Jesus. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. If you're here tonight and you do not know Him, I pray that you would get that solved tonight. Brother Pete, if you'd come, uh, we'll, we'll sing some, some, uh, some verses of a hymn, and then we'll be done. Thanks, brother. Rescue the perishing. We're going to sing the first and the last of this song.